Hello and welcome to the next episode of ADHD Mums. I have literally lost sleep with excitement, which I know I sound, I say that every time, but like most of the people that I interview are just so exciting. I have brought in Millie Carr back. Now she did the episode on the neurodiverse classroom, which, oh my God, I loved every second of it. And I've been implementing a lot of the things that we have um, talked about at the end of that episode we started to side off into highly camouflaged subtypes of ADHD in girls, which Millie is particularly passionate about. So am I. I cleverly, I'm going to say cleverly because I have definitely learnt the art to stop talking, rein someone in and reschedule, which is really difficult to do because then you have to wait, which is a very difficult inpatient ADHD trait that I'm like not very hard to wait to bring Millie back in. So welcome, Millie. I'm super excited. Thank you so much, Jan. I've been really looking forward to this as well. Yeah, really keen to talk about girls. So Millie's got a toddler asleep. I have asked my husband to do me a massive favor to take Billy from me because he's at ECDP. It's a whole thing. To get this happening today, let's just kick off, Millie, about why you're passionate about this particular subject. It's very personal for me. So I've just been recently diagnosed only a couple of months ago. I was aware that I probably was, you know, I did have ADHD probably in the last year and a half, but I was only diagnosed really recently and throughout my own diagnosis process and going back and thinking about myself, I just recognized so many things that I didn't realize. I've just kind of reframed my whole childhood. Everything that's kind of happened to me as a child and through school, you know, just really resonated with me. And I just really wish that I had have known a little bit sooner. And as a teacher myself, I, you know, even as a teacher, I've been, I've missed students that are like myself. So I've missed these girls while teaching. And it's only since, you know, being diagnosed myself that I've been able to, I guess, recognize some of the more subtle things that not everyone kind of can recognize when you've got a masking girl, mainly girls, boys can do it too, but it's very, very common with girls to be able to mask the symptoms and the struggles that we're having in the classroom. So I'm really passionate about it because, yeah, it's very personal for me. I'm also a teacher. My daughter's also diagnosed autistic and ADHD, but again, we didn't diagnose that when she was younger because I missed some of the key kind of signs back then. So really passionate about it because I just think it's such an important thing to get out there so that people are able to recognize it earlier. So, you know, I was 35 when I was diagnosed. I know you were later as well, Jane. It's just, you know, there's all these extra difficulties that have come from finding out now at 35. So much stuff could have been put in place earlier if I had have known earlier and I would have been easier on myself earlier as well. So you're really passionate about getting the word out there about different presentations with girls. Yeah. And, you know, Millie and I have prepared nothing for this episode. So feel free for a fucking ride ladies. What I wanted to ask you was we went, I went and met the head of inclusion the other day at Gigi school and we haven't like, so I always say I'm very into the label because I have ADHD. You have ADHD, everyone hopefully listening should have ADHD, right? Welcome. If you don't, well, you're not sure. So I would have been relieved if I had have known, because it's not like I didn't think there was something wrong with me. I always thought I was a little special, like I use a special word. Like I was like, geez, I get things really fast, but then I don't, you know, you know, you're a little bit different. I wouldn't say I thought I was terrible. I still was confident, but I was understanding that I was not quite on the wavelength as everybody else, or I was on a different wavelength altogether. 
We haven't spoken to Gigi about her having ADHD or anything else at this point. However, I do have your book. It's up in my cupboard. And there's a lot of people and parents who have an issue and they talk about, I don't want to label my kid. I hear it all the time. The inclusion head said to me, oh, I tackle this labeling thing all the time. Now I've had it in my head that I'm going to label and I'm going to get NDIS funding and I'm going to, I'm going to do it all right. Like I want an early intervention, let's go. But then also the inclusion lady actually spoke to me about, well, what's wrong with telling your child? Now I've just been delaying. I am going to tell her, but it's just one of those delay things where you're like, I'm not going to do that today because that seems hard. But I do know that when she hits grade three and there's multiple teachers, there is, I'm going to have to tell her because I am also requesting special treatment, right? So you can't ask for special treatment, whatever that is. I'm air fingering for anyone who's listening and then not disclose to your child why, right? That's a bit confusing too. But I suppose I wanted to ask you, I think there's two different questions. I think you can label your kid to get funding and interventions and not tell them. And then the second step is to actually disclose to a child, What's your thoughts on that? It's a really fabulous question, Jane, because I I was like you. So my daughter was diagnosed probably early primary school with autism. So she's autistic. So I probably didn't talk to her enough about it back then. And I was probably worried like you. I was kind of, I think I was worried. I didn't want her to feel like it was just like a giant big thing. But the more I've learned about this, this is, you know, she's turning 15 this year. So she's, you know, quite a bit older. The more conversations that I have with her and the more that I sit her down and we talk about this stuff it is being hard and it's not because she's a bad person or any other reason other than there's some reasons why she does the things that she does. And she has a lot of trouble socially and making friends. And the more we sit down and talk about it and we talk about it's because you are autistic, you have ADHD, these are the reasons why these are these things are tricky. I think it's easier for her to understand. I think the label, I'm all for labels too. Like I'm very big on the labels. I've had big discussions with people about, you know, labeling and that, you know, who cares? Everyone can be just accepted. And I believe in that. And if you look at listen to the last episode, I spoke about everyone being included and being treated kind of like, I guess, just that neurodiverse, everyone's different kind of thing. However, the world that we are living in is not set up for that. It's not set up for us to be able to live and not have adjustments and not have supports and not have NDIS funding and and not have psychologists and all the medication, all these different stuff that we kind of need to manage in this neurotypical world. We don't have that stuff. So the label's important because at the moment in the world we're living in, it is a disability because the world's set up for neurotypical. So the label's so important, I think, to share with your child, as well as, you know, I'm, I'm really open and honest with it at school. So I feel like this year, since I've kind of really, you know, understood myself more and accepted it a lot myself as well, I share it with students, especially those students that are neurodivergent too, because it makes them go, oh, wow, it's not just like kids. Because I think a lot of the time us adults don't talk about our own neurodivergence. So then our students are like thinking that it's really kind of, again, they're weird, quirky, different people. Whereas, you know, if I can kind of relate to a student and go, you know what, I also have the same trouble. I understand what you're doing. I understand why you're wiggling. I understand why you're calling out. I understand why you're having trouble with your friends and the emotions are really high. I get it. And these are some things I do to help. And I I feel like they take it on a little bit easier. The, The students that know that I've got ADHD at school, the kids that have ADHD, they come running up to me and they're just like, you know, sharing things and telling me stuff. And they're just so excited 
to have someone else that's the same as them. So I think the more you are open and label, you can accept yourself, but then also that community. Like, I, you know, you found a fabulous community, Jane, by doing this podcast. And there's so many women, ADH women and mums that are listening right now that have found a little community through your podcast. And we're talking, you know, online and the community online is fabulous. So without that label and saying that, you don't have that community. The supports aren't as easily accessed and I think it's just about your own self-esteem like I've got a terrible self-esteem and I think it's because I didn't know earlier and I blamed myself I'm, I'm hopeless at planning things I'm really bad at paying for stuff you know I would miss my own child's NDIS meetings and have to reschedule all this stuff I used to be so hard on myself about but there's a reason and now I can just put some things into place so I think it helps with your self-esteem and I think it's really important I think the label is important to talk to your child about at some point. And I did that lady with Charlotte, probably in like late primary school, five, six, we really sat down. I've got some books and really fabulous resources that help her, especially in those teen years, girls in the teen years. Yeah, it's very different. Those hormones are happening and it combined with neurodivergent is just, yeah, an extra level. So I think talking about it and working through it and knowing helps you be able to put those strategies and stuff into place as well. Yeah. And I mean, look, we all talk about stigma and being more inclusive, but then yet, you know, we sit on diagnosis or not diagnosis and then don't tell people or about our kids because we think it might affect them. But then if you flick it the other way, you know, my husband and I, I would class that we are both successful people. I would own that. Have we been generically successful? Have we followed generic pathways? No, we haven't. We've created things. And then found a way to monetize it through sheer persistence and probably hyper-focus and then ended up and also taken a lot of risks, if I'm honest. Like I wouldn't necessarily tell people to take the risks that we have taken and we've been lucky in some ways that they've paid off. But then, you know, I worry about my daughter all all the time. Like I'm going to be honest, all the freaking time. And my brother came up recently and he said to me, seeing Gigi takes me back in time. It's like going 30 years ago. He's like, I have never thought that I would see you as another like human. He goes, I, I cannot believe how similar you are. And sometimes when I am in wake at night, I think she's going to be okay because I struggled a lot too. I came out okay. And I think you're right as a mother or, or parents, we can say, hey, you know what? I actually have that too. And look at me. This is what I do. This is, this is how we can make it better and being more open about it. I absolutely agree with you, but we're always a bit tentative, you know, but I think that's the way we need to be moving. Mm, I completely agree. I think it's, I think people are still learning people that are not neurodivergent, even people that are and haven't come, come to the realization themselves, you know, like my mum definitely is neurodivergent somewhere but she is very negative and sees it as a negative bad thing so would never go get diagnosed and probably even you know think about doing some changes that would really help her and that's different people are not quite there and ready for that I think it's it's happening and I think we kind of slightly touched on it last time we spoke as well things are changing and things are happening but it's it's slow and there still needs to be more education there isn't enough education about how to support people that are neurodivergent in the workplace at school, you know, just in general, because, you know, like 
of most adults are walking around saying, I have ADHD, I have, I'm autistic. It's just not happening. And then, you know, they're working and trying to be neurotypical in the workplace that's set up for that. And then the burnout happens and that's, you know, the cycle that a lot of us adults are going through. So it's just, it's a learning curve. I think we're all still learning. So the more we share this stuff, we need to share it with people. This is what it looks like in girls, in boys, inattentive, hyperactive, whatever, you know, presentation you've got, autistic, all the different kind of neurodivergences, dyslexia, all that kind of stuff. Once we learn more about what those things are, I think when people know, you know, what they are, the acceptance is better and it'll be easier, I guess, for us to kind of not have that stigma. The stigma is still there because we don't know enough. When you don't know something about something, you kind of are unsure about it. So you just, you know, and all people know about these things a lot of the time is the stereotypes or things they've seen in TV or movies or you know, in the classroom they were growing up in. And, you know, the ADHD stigma is still that it is little boys running around the classroom, being disruptive, defiant, not following the rules. That's what ADHD is to a lot of people still. So when people don't know the other part of that, you know, even when I was diagnosed, people were like baffled because like you said, Jane, I'm quite successful. I've had multiple businesses also. So I'm a teacher. I've done that and I'm quite successful in my teaching career. I'm in a leadership position at at school and I've done that for like nine years. But then I've also done a cookie decorating business, a cake decorating business, my cert three and four in personal training. I was going to start a personal training business at one point. I've written a book. You know what I mean? Like I just, I go and do so many different things and that's my ADHD and it's fabulous. Like it makes me do all these really fabulous things, but it comes with the negatives too, but people don't see that because they say oh wow Millie can do all this stuff like she's so successful and I do lots of different things but they don't see the stuff that happens at home and I probably don't share all that really bad stuff all the time either I try to but I feel like people don't want to see that all the time so it's hard to share because they see just me going oh Millie's released a book and she's doing all this fabulous stuff but then at home I burn out and I crash and it's just really hard so you can see that you're successful and it's hard for people to see that and believe that you're here you have ADHD or you're autistic or something else as well because they're seeing the success only, I guess. So yeah, that masking part of it comes in, I guess, in that too. But the stigma I think around saying is because yeah, when I said it, a lot of people questioned me and I had to over explain myself. I had to be like, well, this, 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 this are things that I do that you don't see all the time. But my partner sees and, you know, my family see me doing these things, but you don't see them all the time because I'm really great at like being able to put on a bit of an act out in public, but then at home it all kind of falls apart a little bit. So I think it's like everyone being open about their their diagnosis and the stigma, the more we learn, hopefully we'll it's a process. It's not going to happen now. It's going to happen over years. And I'm I'm positive that it's going to happen, but it's it's slow. It's going to be a slow process, but doing this stuff now is really important. One thing that really strikes me about what you said is I was talking to a friend recently. She's not a close friend. So I said to her, oh yeah, you know, cause I have ADHD and she goes, oh, oh wow. She goes, keep meeting all these successful people. And they just keep saying they have ADHD. She goes, I keep meeting them. And it's like, wow. She goes, I'm really getting mind blown. Anyway, she was really meaning it in a lovely way, right? She was really intrigued and asked a lot of questions, which I thought was great. Anyway, the next thing I said to her was I said, you know where ADHD adults come from? And she's like, where? And I said, from school. You know the successful students at school that you think are like really killing it? 
and you think, oh, they couldn't possibly have, they're probably the ones that have ADHD, especially the girls. And when I told her, she could see her brain completely scramble. And I said to her, you know, there's this thing around this naughty ADHD child. Actually, it's not necessarily that. And also as well, while I'm on the fucking rampage, Jasmine Meek, who we just released the episode for, because she has the highly camouflaged subtype, she didn't pass through the DSM. So her childhood symptoms didn't match because she masked and then she couldn't get diagnosed and she's basically having a breakdown. Don't mind me saying that, Jasmine, because she was desperate for medication, didn't receive it. So we do really need to change it, yes, to identify them. And then also once we have a parent that identifies that, we need to have some professionals lined up to actually diagnose that because it's a two-way step there. And to get both together in a highly camouflaged girl, oh my God, it's a miracle. So I suppose, Millie, let's take a step back. What, What are we looking for with these girls? So the girls that are very similar to myself and that are highly masking, and I've noticed that more and more, obviously now I know the things that I'm not, the inattention. So a lot of the time, these girls are not paying attention, but they are sitting on the ground, like they're sitting on the floor, they're doing the thing that's expected, they're crossing their legs, they're on the floor, they are quiet, but they are not paying attention to what's going on. So they get back to the table and then they're just like, well, what am I doing? I don't know what to do. So then they're kind of asking people around, trying to figure out or copy what everyone's doing till they can figure out what they need to do and then they might get started. That's one kind of really element of it. Another part is there's some often the perfectionist children, the ones, so these kids, they can't start writing. I find writing's a really tricky one for them to do. They cannot make a start. So all the other kids are like, you know, doing stuff and they go and revise and fix it up. They can't write anything because they're scared it's going to be bad, wrong. The spelling's not going to be good enough. So they just do nothing. So you get to the end of 30 minutes and you go past them and you're like, what have you done? And they're like, I don't know. They're like, I was going to start, but they just kind of get really stuck. So they just don't start something. Or there's the kids that really struggle with things that they're not interested in. So like, you know, if they're really great at like reading, they'll be fabulous with that. But then the maths part will be terrible. So they don't even like try in maths and they just kind of talk to the person next to them and don't go, don't get it done. There's also parts, you know, the emotions and the outside play is massive and the social situations with these girls, they tend to, you know, do things to get some dopamine or get that little fix or they kind of pick at fights or they say things that they they don't have that control of what they're saying, that impulse control. They'll say something and then that kind of alienates them out from the other girls or they're just girls that are so quiet because they're so scared to actually say anything because they don't want to say anything wrong that they've barely got any friends because they don't know how to go up and, you know, make that kind of move to friendship. So a lot of these, a lot of the times it's the really quiet girls. They generally struggling with something academically at some area, you know, whether it's doing homework, whether it's doing that they're not interested in, there's one area, but they're also doing fabulous stuff in other areas. So they're, you know, performing arts. It could be amazing because they're able to act it out and they're really good at that, but then they're not great at like actually doing, you know, writing kind of thing. So there's kids that have got areas in learning that they're really fabulous at, areas that they're not. They're very forgetful. Maybe they're not organized. They've got books everywhere they lose the sheet that you've given them 15 minutes ago stuff like that they're the things that kind of 
yeah, I'm seeing more and more with these kind of kids again that I wouldn't have picked up as being ADHD a few years ago. I would have just been like, oh, they're really forgetful. Oh, goodness, it's they'd lose their head if it wasn't screwed on. That's the stuff that you hear about these kind of kids. And it's and they sometimes hold it together all day at school. So at school, you don't notice too much of it. But at home, the parents are coming in and saying at home, they get home and there's like a massive meltdown, like they are losing it at home and we don't know what's going on and then we're not seeing that at school. There's no meltdowns at school because they just sit there then they go home and feel terrible because they've done nothing. They they feel like they're dumb or bad at something or they're not listening. Why can't I listen? They're trying really hard, but they just can't do it, do the thing that they're doing. So they're the kind of really key things that I see and resonated for me too. That was like my experience at school. My daughter as well, she's very highly masking at school and then at home has those major meltdowns and stuff when she gets in the door. So yeah, they're the things that I, signs that I would kind of look out for if you were, yeah, if your child's coming home and presenting like that in the classroom. Okay, beautiful. I love what you said. I'm going to add, I think, two more things because you've just nailed all that. The one that I was going to add as an extra was I feel like there's a lot of negative thinking as well. So they come home and, you know, they tell you about every single bad thing that's happened in the day. Interestingly enough, one of my best friends is a teacher's aide in Gigi's grade. So it's interesting because her perspective of what Gigi is is doing and saying and her friendships is not the version that I get. So interesting because she's one of my closest friends. She's known Gigi Nelly since she was born. So like I trust her is what I'm saying and I get a very negative version of events which also then create anxiety. So I've been working with her a lot around growth mindset and looking at, you know, the way that she's thinking and the way she's interpreting events. I feel like there's some anxiety and negative interpretation that happens with girls as well, which may or may not actually be real. And it's hard as a parent to know if it's real or not. Like, is that child actually bullying my kid? Or is she just walking past and then Gigi's going, oh, she's ignoring me? I don't know a lot of the time what's real and what isn't. And I don't think Gigi does either. And I think as well with that, there's a lot of rushing. Like when you were talking about socially, Gigi can read faces, fine. She's not a problem with that, but she doesn't take the time to look around and just pick up what's happening. So it's kind of like the kid that just walks in and goes, yeah, so we're playing handball and everyone else is like doing something completely different. And she's like, yeah, we're playing handball. And she can't pick up that maybe she should say, in a few minutes after we're playing this, maybe we could play handball. So often I think they're called, you know, bossy, domineering, my son, Gus, calls some of the girls in his class that are undiagnosed, but, you know, you kind of walk around and have your own thoughts. He calls them bossy boots or um, mean, which they're not mean, um, but he says that he doesn't like to be told what to do. And I'm think, looking around going, probably a lot of those girls have ADHD and they're just trying to, like, help him or whatever, and um, he's taking it as, I don't want your direction. So I suppose for a second, Millie, let's just talk about this. So with your daughter, I know with mine, it took me about how many years? Two at least with not fighting. I wouldn't say fighting because the teachers were amazing, but having discussions about Gigi for at least two years. And it was only when I was diagnosed myself by a treating psychologist. I didn't seek it out. I had no idea. This treating psychologist said to me, this is what you have. Then I started to go, well, I'm raising a mini me. This is what I'm hearing and seeing. Maybe I'm starting to put this together, right? Like I had no help. I literally had to put it together on my own and, and then 
Google it. So I suppose what I'm saying is if, if how did you go with your daughter, like from a teacher's point of view, you've got the parents coming going, this is, they've got the meltdowns at home, this is what I'm seeing, and the teacher might be stuck old school as well. Like how does that work? Yeah, it's very interesting because whenever I spoke about what she was doing at home, because it was so extreme, like she's been hard work for me at home since she was about like one and a half, two. Like we've had massive, uh, she argues constantly and goes around in circles and loops and the meltdowns happen as soon as she walks in the door. But at school, absolutely, especially in primary school, she was an angel, like was a complete angel, do her work. She's quite bright as well. So she actually does really well in most subject areas. So whenever, when I actually wanted to get her diagnosed, you have to give obviously the form to the teacher as well. So it matches. So what we're seeing at home is the same as what we're seeing at school and it doesn't match. It didn't match. So whatever they were saying, they were like, no, no, we don't see any of that, like nothing at all, only anxiety. The anxiety you were talking about, she would often have sore tummies. So she'd be needing to go to the sick bay with a sore tummy and it generally was some kind of anxiety about something that was going on kind of in the classroom or with friendships a lot of the time. But like it's really hard because when you're having those conversations, I'd be like, well, this is what I'm seeing at home. And I think it was easier because Charlotte for primary school attended the school that I was working at. So there's a difference there in that they knew me professionally as a teacher as well as a parent. So when I was having these conversations, it was a little bit easier, I think, in that I was able, they kind of believed me, I guess. I think I've heard other teachers go, well, that's ridiculous. What are they doing at home? Because we're not seeing anything like that at school. Whereas often when parents come in and tell me that, you know, this is what we're seeing at home and I'm not seeing that at school, I kind of go, okay, well, what's going on? Because I know that that meltdown stuff can happen when you go home and there can be that flip and overwhelm from the whole day and keeping it together. And then when you go home, so the conversations, I think pushing for it, like you've been doing, Jane, is really important. I'm, you know, standing up and advocating for them when they can't advocate for themselves. It's very important saying, no, look, Honest, this this is what it is. This is what we're seeing, and what's happening at school is causing the stuff that I'm seeing at home. So, what can you do to help support this so that she doesn't come home and scream at me for three hours? Because that's what was happening to me. So, I was trying to ask them to get her to put some things in place to help her at school. So when she got home, it wasn't just all unleashed on, on me, which is what it happens like a lot of the time. So some of the things that they put in place, you know, like they were regularly checking in, but they weren't doing that. They were just assuming that she was fine and just leaving her to her own devices. So they were regularly checking in with her and like asking about friendships mainly for her is what set her off a lot of the time. So talking about social things, social scripts that she could say to kind of talk to her friends and that stuff kind of managed and eased her anxiety a little bit so that then she wasn't coming home all the time and like screaming at me straight away. So yeah, just kind of talking to them about what they can do at school. So then that home time, that home stuff, even if they're not seeing it at school, what's going on at school and how can you change? Even that perception thing you were talking about, you know, they have a very different perception of what's happening in the classroom. So that teaching of that though, that like, that's how you saw it, but this person saw it like this and putting themselves in other people's shoes as well and teaching that. It's all teaching. You know, these things don't come naturally to us. So it's trying to teach them how other people could be feeling and that maybe that person wasn't looking at you that way. Maybe that person was just looking because they're tired, you know, and could that be a reason? Yes, it could be. Oh, so maybe they're not angry at you. And I get that because I sometimes pick up on people's 
facial expressions and their attitude, I can really tell if I walk in and I'm like, something's off with someone. So we do have that intuition with that. So you can pick it up, but sometimes we do misjudge. It could be just something personal with them and not, you know, they relate it back to themselves a lot when they're younger. So yeah, I would keep going back with your teachers and just being like, this is actually something, this is what we're seeing. And it's probably because you something's happening at school and we're not dealing with it in the school setting before we come home. Yeah, and I think as well, one of the things that really gets me is I think if you are proactive enough as a parent and you can pick this up, let's say you're listening to this podcast and you're like, yeah, look, I I have ADHD. I thought it was only my son's. Maybe my daughter does as well. Mm, I wonder what to do. If you have to try and source a diagnosis, right, for a child, like, I mean, we're a year in here. We're lucky we ended up getting in on a friend of a friend clinical psych because I'm in the industry. So I was very lucky. I got in with someone right before she had her baby, got three kids done. Like I was super lucky. But, you know, like I know, for example, in Tasmania, like literally people are having to fly into states. So to get a diagnosis can be really difficult. It can be incredibly expensive, time consuming, right? So then you finally get there. And you find that they have no understanding of what we're what we're talking about. So I think if you're going to make that big leap of faith and you've got time, money heavily invested, I would always personally jump on Facebook, even send me a DM and say, this is my postcode. Where can I go to get a diagnosis, you know, for this? The other thing that I find is clinical psychs, females, a lot of them are neurodiverse. So they do have ASD and ADHD, some of them. That's their special interest. They diagnose women and girls really well. It's I know it's more expensive because you have to do that report first, but then you can take that report to the psychiatrist. Is it a longer way to do it? Sometimes, but if you're just relying on a, a psychiatrist or a pediatrician that you don't know, you might get turned away. So, God, does it have to be any harder? But yes, it does. What do you think of the diagnosis? process I was going to actually go into that so that was like a perfect I was my brain was thinking that exact same thing so at the moment you know I've got a a student that is in a class that I'm working with I've had an inkling that she has got ADHD she's been diagnosed with dyslexia and then was referred to do some further testing but even the parents so they spoke about some things with us that really relates to what we're kind of talking about symptoms they're seeing at home and issues at home but then when they filled out the form for their home form they even filled it out I was reading some of it and going this is not going to get her diagnosed like they're going to turn her away I could see it I saw it and I was like this is not going to actually she won't be diagnosed with ADHD now later but it won't be now because that form that the parents have given actually doesn't actually support that support things they're telling me that happens at home anyway they've kind of changed it and said oh it was like maybe and I'm like that's not going to get her diagnosed and you know even myself when I went to get diagnosed the first appointment I had with a psychiatrist he told me to take anxiety medication because it appeared that I had anxiety and was scoring quite high for anxiety and depression which is very very common for females they are the co-existing things that we get diagnosed with first or for many, many years until we finally get a diagnosis. If you don't keep pushing, then you don't. But they told me, he told me to do that. I actually refused and said no because he didn't even do like the actual 
you know, the ADHD test to like, he didn't do that. He just asked me questions and said, you're scoring really high for anxiety and depression. I want you to start anxiety medication and see how they go and then come back. And I said, no, like I'm not, I actually don't want to take anxiety medication first because my anxiety and depression, I think is highly linked to the way I'm managing my ADHD which it definitely is, you know, I've started medication now and it definitely changes everything. Like it's changed everything already about the way I'm feeling about myself, the way I can do things and, you know, focus on tasks that I don't love all the time and get that stuff that's important for my life to get done. So that anxiety and depression stuff, that's that diagnosis, it's happening with kids. You know, if you have a student like your daughter coming in with that anxiety, that's what they're going to get diagnosed with a lot of the time. Unless you find someone, like you said, Jane, that is experienced and knows about girls with ADHD. And a lot of medical people in the medical world are not on top of what we're talking about near these different symptoms and different representations. They're not really looking and going, oh, that's definitely probably a girl with ADHD. They're not looking at that and they're, you know, not getting diagnosed and being pushed aside and given anxiety medication and it's not helping them because anxiety isn't the problem. It's, you know, the way they're, they're ADHD and the way they're managing that. And it can definitely have, you know, coexisting conditions of anxiety and depression alongside your ADHD for sure. But a lot of the time that stuff's being diagnosed without any, you know, talk about ADHD or autism or anything else that probably is actually the root cause that's actually making all of this other stuff happen. All this anxiety and um, depression is really linked to how we're managing our neurodivergent brains. So I think the diagnosis process is not perfect. I saw a telehealth person to actually get in quickly because the wait was next year in March and I had just decided I wanted to get it done. I knew I was going to be diagnosed. It was no doubt in my mind that that's what it was. So I just pushed telehealth wise, but the people that want to find someone that really understands and the person that I was referred to next March is her only available, you know, window. She was supposedly fabulous and made you feel really fabulous, but I just couldn't wait that long. So the process is ridiculous. The lengthy wait periods across Australia, ridiculous. Otherwise then you're going into telehealth and the way I got diagnosed and it wasn't a nice process. I didn't feel great about it. I mean, I'm great. I feel great that I've been diagnosed and now my GP is looking after my medication and, and, Um, ongoing support at the moment but it wasn't a nice process I didn't feel great about it I felt like I have to I had to like really prove that's what it was and it just didn't feel very great so the whole diagnosis process for adults is not great so let alone you know young girls and students that are still in school and it's just really hard because if the parents don't know like if they don't know about these things themselves, hard to push. Do you mean like people like yourself and me and other women that are already diagnosed are like, yeah, we know that's what it is. We can see it. You know, you know the symptoms. You can push a little bit harder. If you don't know, yeah, you, you can't push and you're like, oh, yeah, they've got anxiety and that's not it and then they'll find out later when they're an adult and there's all these other things that have probably happened because it hasn't been diagnosed or helped earlier. So the diagnosis process I think is quite terrible at the moment and I think that there needs to be a bit of a re-jig of like the entire the criteria you know everything just in general needs to be kind of modified and changed um yeah because at the moment it's just not it's not enough and not good enough for those that you know don't have those stereotypical kind of disruptive traits 
they'll diagnose the boys are disruptive in no time. But, you know, not the girls that are just sitting there struggling. Yeah. Oh, look, you and I are just like we agree on pretty much everything, don't we? But um, I did an episode called Medication and Psychiatrists and I absolutely agree with you. I just went like I know what I have. I've already I've already been told by my training psychologist, I've got a family history. This makes absolute sense to me. So I did a quick, quick shit bust kind of telehealth system, which I agree is completely awful. Not great, but kind of gets you what you need. I've had a couple of friends recently who have gone to an in-person psychiatrist because they want to do it and I'm air quoting properly, but they've actually been really let down with the properly because the properly is like they just read out you know, do you feel tired in the morning, whatever it is? And they just go, yes, no. And the personal experience that someone might be expecting is not there necessarily with what I've seen anyway. And I've seen a lot of psychiatrists in my time. Why? Because I was misdiagnosed a million bloody times. And I kept going back trying to figure out what was wrong with me. Another air quotes, what's wrong with me. And I think the part that really pisses me off is that when parents who are trying their bloody best, identify something in their daughter or child, whatever, and they're turned away or given anti-anxiety first or whatever, try and treat the symptom. That makes no sense, right? That's like going, oh, I've got a broken arm, but let's just like bandage up your fingers and see if that works. Like you're not treating the actual problem. And then the poor child, and I, I get angry because this happened to me. I was heavily medicated. They kept turning up, turning up, turning up when I was a child. Because it's like, oh, she's not still not getting better. Let's not try something new. Let's just like, let's just keep going and give her more of it. It's taking so many uppers and downers, right? And then I'm giving all these therapies and my poor parents probably spent a lot of money in all of this stuff. And then I did weekly psychology that my mom had to drive me to, right? And then what were we doing? We were doing anxiety treatment that I couldn't really do. Like the, the interventions didn't make sense to me. I had an incredibly hyperactive brain and they're going lay down and, you know, this is just the worst. And then I was just there going, there's something wrong with me because I, I can't, like I'm getting a lot of help. I've got a lot of appointments. Everybody's telling me I'm not doing better. I'm not feeling better. Why is that? I'm, are there something wrong with me innately? But, you know, if you had have given me some, um, my brother was taking ADHD medication. I didn't get any. You know, that just pisses me off a little bit. But anyway, I've gotten on a rant. How amazing would it have been to, when you were younger, like your brother, <laughs> have had the medication and just seen what the difference would have made back then? Like I just, I always think back to that time and think to like the person that I was and how hard I tried all the time. I tried so hard to do really well and the extra effort that I had to put in that I didn't realise everyone else was putting in to actually just look like I was doing a reasonably good job was just so much and I just would love to be able to go back and just see what difference that would have made to just my general well-being and mental health because yeah I think when you're in that high school phase you just it's such a hard time for everyone but let alone people that are undiagnosed neurodivergent people because it's just yeah it's a hard hard time you're not diagnosed you've got no help even when you're saying about like being told to med meditate I can't meditate either I, I listen to like 30 seconds and my brain is already off in like a million other directions. I've tried a million different yoga things and stuff to settle me down and I just can't do it. And now I know why. And I feel like that makes a whole lot of sense, but like you just feel shit always. Cause you're like, I just try so hard. Why can't I do what everybody else does? 
like they make it so easy just to go pay your bills. That's like an easy thing to do, but it's not an easy thing to do when you have ADHD. So just how amazing would it be to go back and just kind of do that? So that's why we can't do that. We can do this for our girls that are coming through now. We can give them the support and help. And not everyone needs to be medicated. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe they try it, at least giving them the option to try it and be like, ah, this has made a massive difference for me. Or maybe, nah, these other strategies kind of work better for me. But just the knowing, I think the knowing is so important. And yeah, it's just kind of so hard to get diagnosed and get that support. Back then, right now, it still is the same for girls at the moment. Do you know what I mean? We're getting better at it. 30 years ago, no one would have mentioned any girl had ADHD. Now we know there's like it's one to three ratio of girls to boys, but it's not good enough because it's not. It's pretty much half-half when they're adults, do you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, there's like two-thirds of girls sitting there in the classroom that are just not diagnosed and just sitting there struggling. It's really, really annoying. So I'm quite on on the same page with you about that. Like it's just, yeah, so annoying and I'd love for girls coming through now to have that different experience, have that help earlier. I am not a, like I'm not a health expert or I'm not in the health system, but I do think there's a real big problem there with if I take my daughter to the GP with some anxiety, they can give her anxiety medication, right? Okay, you can't take them anywhere else because there's nowhere to go. So they either suffer silently and you wait Maybe to be gaslit when you get there, you don't know. I My wish that I would have, and I'm not an expert, is that maybe a clinical psych could work with a GP to prescribe stimulants medication because, okay, my feelings aren't great towards psychiatrists and probably because of my history. To be to be fair, I am biased because I, was, I had, went to a pediatric psychiatrist who nearly ruined my life. I'm very lucky that I'm still alive because I was very, very, very suicidal for years because of that doofus. I looked him up the other day because I thought, I wonder if he's still practicing. I think he's actually might be dead. But anyway, look, to be fair to him, he probably didn't know any better. You know, this is, this is, you know, this is 20 years ago, but like still, I'm still pissed off. My point is I would love to have a clinical psych work with a GP around it because I just think the psychiatrists are overworked anyway, right? Like the pediatricians are overworked. There's a gap. Why not let our clinical psychs work in with a GP? For me, knowing my GP and add the clinical psych we use, I reckon that would be a really great treatment protocol. I actually am. My GP is monitoring my medication and stuff at the moment. So in Victoria, I'm not sure every, every state's a bit different, but the psychiatrist has kind of sent his recommendations and stuff to my GP and my GP had to apply for something so he can kind of monitor and gauge. So I go back and see him probably once a month and just kind of talk about how I'm feeling and what it's like. And he's allowed to up and lower and change medications as well. He's got, but I have to regularly see the psych in between to just kind of clarify and modify that. And I think it's a really great, I'd much prefer it. My GP is lovely. I know he really cares about me. I know he really wants to ask questions and like, you know, I know him better. So it just kind of feels better than it did going to just a psychiatrist on the telehealth, just calling up them. It just felt so, yeah, just didn't feel very great. But that, that option to have someone that, you know, working with the GP. Yeah. I'm seeing the GP regularly and I feel comfortable that he's doing the right thing 
for me and he's you know going in the right path and making sure that it's all working really well because yeah the psychs I think they just I don't know they're very overworked they have a lot of appointments like you said and there's so many people going to see them at the moment they don't have the time I don't think to really give that that care that you need whereas the GP that you see regularly probably has that ability to do that and I, I think agree that'd be it's a great combination they won't do that with kids though and this is where I think the clinical psychologist Mm-hmm. should be able to be that treating professional because the problem that you've got at the moment is, okay, you've got, I've got Gigi, let's say. I'm being gaslit for two years until I get diagnosed myself. I then talk to the psychologist and go, can you check out my daughter? He looks at her and goes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I then have to go and find someone else to diagnose her. I've got a pediatrician that I've been waiting to see for a year, all right? The appointment is in a month. God help me how I'm going to go there because I'm going to be walking in with the clinical psychologist report, right, with all the treatment that I'm already doing that's working in my mind. I don't necessarily want to medicate straight up, but I would like to have a conversation and be on a list. So if and when I need to do that, I don't have to wait a year, right? So that's all well and good, but I am very aware that this pediatrician will probably look at this report and go, that's nice and put it aside and make her own assessment or his own assessment. I can't even remember if it's a male or female. But I think the part is that I have a lot of faith in the clinical psychologists. I think that they do incredible job. The assessors that I've seen are incredible. And I think they should be able to work with a GP. That's just my personal opinion because they, I mean, how many years has a psych got to go to uni to be a clinical psych? I think about six. Then they've got to do like placements. They've got to do supervision. Like it's so intense, right? For them to then be able to diagnose and then, I mean, plus as well, the clinical psychs can get your child on the NDIS. The reports are accepted. So we're on the NDIS at the moment with speech and language delay and a lot of other stuff from a clinical psych. Pediatrician only needed for medication. So why can the clinical psych not work with the GP? Because if the clinical psychs are the ones that know what highly camouflaged ADHD in girls look like, you know why? Because they have it, most of them. Most of them are passionate because that's their area. So, and if we pay two and a half grand for a report, why can't they work with our GP? Like that to me makes no sense that we add in someone with a huge waiting list to then check off something. Anyway, I'm getting on a rant, but I I just think that this is is why they're undiagnosed. The diagnosis pathway is horrendous. Then you get people that have to go back and back and back. Not everyone has all that money and time. Also, sometimes you've only got one shot. You know, you finally get someone to go and go to seek help. They get turned away. That's it. Label, done, tick. No, you don't have that. I interviewed Jenny Cleary about her daughter a while ago in the Australian school system. And, you know, she went to an assessment psych when her daughter was really young. So maybe that was part of it. And they said, no, she doesn't have autism, even though Jenny thought she did. And then what happened later on, it became a bit more apparent. And Jenny went back. But for a good five years there, she was going, no, you don't have that. I've already checked. So like in fairness to her, she'd already checked. So if she hadn't been so proactive, she would have just left it. Yeah, exactly right. And that's that's the problem. If you don't know to go back and push like we do, like, yeah, I was quite pushy with my daughter. I knew when she was in early primary school, but not everyone probably has that same awareness of it either. So if someone, a professional, is telling you, no, they don't have that, 
what are you supposed to do? Like that they're the professional, you know, they're the ones that are telling you no. So you kind of go, okay. So if that's happened to people, it's not their fault. Like it's, it's, they've been told no, but you know, if you're still seeing stuff going back and just, you know, advocating again and saying, no, this is not right. I think that's so important too. Cause yeah, you get that no, but I, my, my confidence in some professionals and there are some that are fabulous. Like there are some that are really fabulous, but some of the professionals in the medical field are not on top of all this stuff at the moment. And they need to update what they're doing because sending kids away and saying they've got anxiety, giving them anxiety medication instead of being diagnosed for whatever it actually probably is, is, is not good enough. And I think that it's definitely making the whole process for young girls harder, longer, they don't get diagnosed till later, and then all these other associated problems come from that stuff. So, yeah, completely agree. It's a tricky system at the moment and there needs to be a bit of education across the board on what you're looking for. The other thing that I was going to mention as a positive, because I know I can get on a negative rant, but a positive a positive note, in the US they have started screening juvenile offenders and people in eating disorder or girls in eating disorder clinics for ADHD. So there is a very strong correlation between ADHD and juvenile offending and also eating disorders. So instead of getting them in and then trying to figure out, oh, like trying to rehab them, but they're still impulsive, dopamine seeking, let's see, for example, or, you know, a lot of women and people with ADHD go through trauma because of situations that, you know, they then find themselves in accidentally. So because, you know, they're not socially aware or they've taken risks or they've become too excited and drunk too much and decided to get in the car. Who knows, right? We've all done some crazy stuff and it's really sad when a bad decision that you make then kind of changes your life like, you know, a juvenile, like let's say a DUI and someone someone dies in a car accident. There's so many things that can happen that are just awful accidents that comes from a bad decision. I've made a truckload of bad decisions when I was young. I'm very lucky that none of them had life-changing effects for me. And some people do have that. I think that screening process is going to be really important. I'd love to see that here. Oh, I think that's fabulous. Yeah. I've heard the same kind of thing. I think eating disorders is a very massive link. Again, thinking about girls and I know for myself, that's a big thing for me. I've often had, I've had so many issues and roller coasters with emotional eating when I'm not really feeling great you know, that kind of stuff. And I think screening for people that have those issues is absolutely fabulous. And I think also, yeah, that when you get to that point, but then also teachers, I think also empowering teachers to see it as well, because teachers are the ones that see the kids a lot. You know, you're, you're at home with your, your child as well. Teachers are seeing those kids too. So as a positive, I think if we work on the teachers, so you've got the medical profession, that's probably something that I can't really contribute to. That's something that needs to be changing, but teaching if we teach teachers what to look for because they do it with boys if we see as a boy disrupting being disobedient they bring parents in we have a discussion we refer them off to a gp for a referral for a pediatrician that's kind of happens constantly it doesn't happen as much for these girls with these kind of symptoms that we've talked about earlier in the episode so i think it's like i think there's a key thing there that kind of stuff similar kind of thing to what they're doing there in america screening people that are doing these kind of things but also teaching the people that are with these students and and kids what it looks like across the board so you can pick up girls and boys of different kind of presentations at that time when they're in school to stop them even getting to that juvenile offending or eating disorder point. I think the teachers are a really big key 
in this and teachers knowing about what to look for and then being able to call parents in and say, look, I'm seeing this, this and this. You know, as teachers, we can't actually say, I think it's this. Like that's, we, we can't say things like that, but we can be like, look, there are some barriers. These are the behaviours we're seeing. I'll write you a letter. You can take that to your paediatrician. Those conversations aren't happening for those girls, particularly that are inattentive or are just showing anxiety. Those, a lot of the time the teacher's like, oh, she's got a bit, she's a bit of anxiety. They don't even like, if they're doing reasonably well at school, parents aren't called. But I think, yeah. We need to be really conscious of the small little hints we're seeing and bring the parents in early. The teachers are a big, big key. I think if we teach the teachers what to look for, it will help parents know then they can go, you know, find a professional in the medical field that works for them. That's a positive, preventative stuff. But I think if we know about it and the teachers know about it, it'll help catch those kids before they get to high school or or adulthood and then they're not diagnosed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if we keep talking about it, then when the teacher hopefully does approach and says, hey, this is what I'm seeing, the parent doesn't see it as a, as a negative or as a, um, you know, my child isn't doing well or there's something wrong with them. It's like, oh, really? Okay. I didn't know that. Like, it'd be great to have the response to be not defensive because I can imagine as a teacher saying that to a parent could be really negative. You know, they could interpret it negatively when it's not necessarily no, it's never negative and the way, you know, we always, most teachers, I mean, I can't speak for all teachers, there's obviously varying levels of people, but when we bring parents in normally, the conversations that I generally have are that, look, we're seeing these things and they're barriers to their learning or barriers to their social, you know, ability to socialise or thrive. Like it's it's things that we want them to do for them, you know, how can we make them thrive at school, thrive at home and be the best versions of themselves and yeah, so that's kind of how teachers should be broaching that kind of stuff to parents is like these are the behaviours that I'm kind of seeing. They're kind of things that are kind of inhibiting this or maybe they're barriers to their learning or whatever they're doing and like maybe it's worth going and checking it out, you know, and it just, you know, without that conversation, often parents aren't quite aware of it. If the teacher's not bringing it to their attention either that there's some things that they're noticing at school, then, yeah, it kind of just goes ahead. I mean, no one ever contacted my parents about me at school because whenever we had parent-teacher interviews, it was like, Millie's fabulous. Like she's, she talks a little bit too much. That was the one thing that people would say in parent-teacher interviews, Millie talks too much. She talks a lot. She needs to sit with people that aren't going to make her talk. It just, my talking was all it was spoken about, but everything else was, she works really hard. She tries really hard, really fabulous. But if you had have actually properly noticed some of the things that I did at school, it would have been apparent probably that that stuff actually wasn't quite normal compared to some of the other kids in the class. So I think it's like having those conversations and being able to spot it for the teachers is really important to be able to then let the parents know and then they can go do what they want with it as well though. It's, you know, obviously parents don't have to go and take a letter to a paediatrician, but hopefully if teachers bring it up, the parents are like, okay, a teacher's seeing this, I want the best for my child let's go and do that and not be negative about it because it's not a negative thing. And I think people that shift at the start, I was talking about not having that stigma. It's not a, it's not a bad thing. It's not a negative thing. It's not a bad thing to be neurodivergent. It's, it's not, it's a different brain. We all have different brains. It's a different way our brain works. When you learn about your brain, you can work with your brain. And that's what parents need to understand. It's not, it's not a negative thing. We're not trying to like tell them, well, you know, it's a bad 
life-changing end-of-the-world thing. It's like let's help them, let's try and give them support, and that's all it is. The I read somewhere, and I just checked it when as you were talking because, you know, you can't just do one thing. And it said here, you know the guy that came up with Asperger's? I think his name was Mr. Asperger. Here he is, Dr. Hans Asperger. He said, quote, it seems that for success in science or art, a dash of autism is essential. Love that. Definitely. It's so true. Because I'm like, like if you look at, like it's not a negative, and I have a couple of theories which are totally like just personal opinions that, you know, people that are really into, you know, rugby, you know, like MMA fighting, like some of those really elite athletes, when they interview them afterwards, I'm like, hmm. And it's not a negative. It just means that to have that level of drive, to have that level, to to be in your early 20s and hit the Olympics and not go backpacking, not go out drinking, not go sleeping around, not doing drugs, to have that level of focus I don't think is a, and I'm using air quotes again, normal thing to, to, to do. So some of these incredibly successful people are actually neurodivergent in my personal opinion. So I think success is, I actually do think it is essential in some ways. Half of the things that I have done, which would be seen as accomplishments, have been because of my hyper-focus, because I was interested in it and I have delved so deep into it that I've been able to produce something really amazing. I'm quite creative. It's all, it's my ADHD. Like without my ADHD, I don't think I would have been able to do some of these things. I love learning and I don't think I would have that passion for learning and wanting to find out as much as I can about something if I didn't have ADHD. And I think, yeah, the positives are there. And I think when we, again, this is going back to what I said at the very beginning about as adults, I think it's really important that we're really honest with our diagnosis. Cause I think I can see the difference that it's made at school with students, me saying that I have ADHD, you know, reading my book, telling the kids, explaining what that is and what it looks like for me. And it looks like it's different for other people. When I'm working with these kind of kids, I kind of can sit down and go to them I have the same problem. I talk too much and I get in trouble for talking when I was at school. But these are things that you can do. I'm still successful. Actually, my talking probably makes me, that's probably a really positive. I talk a lot and that's because I'm passionate about it. It's a, it's a strength. It's kind of flipping these things that we're calling negatives or they're disruptive. Well, they're actually probably got a really fabulous thought that they want to like share because it's really exciting to them or they're hyper-focused so they get distracted because they're focused on whatever they're doing. That's because they're doing something really great there and they're going to come up with a fabulous thing. So it's flipping it and making it their strengths. A lot of these things are strengths. There are some things that definitely are barriers and that cause problems in this neurotypical world, but a lot of those things are strengths and there are a lot of positive Fabulous people, like you're saying, athletes, movie stars, you know, amazing scientists and people that come up with creative solutions. These people are probably neurodivergent. A lot of them, you know, we have those fabulous brains that think different and the different thinking is great. It's great thinking. We have killed it, Millie. I think I think we've nearly covered all of the points that I had in my brain. Is there anything left that you think we haven't covered? No, I think that's pretty, we've pretty been pretty thorough with it. We talked about medical kind of system. We talked about just generally the school system again, diagnosing girls, the different signs that we kind of see. That's the really important stuff, I think. Yeah, I think it's just about 
just letting people know the different kind of presentations and spreading this awareness. I think we've kind of covered that. Yeah, I think so too. Okay, so let's just say if someone's listening to this and they're still thinking about it, I reckon we should put some notes in the episode notes around maybe a self-test. There's self-tests for ADHD for yourself that you can do. You can also do them for your kids. So let's just, I might find one that's not just a typical eight-year-old boy if I can and put that in there. So then you know, you can actually see what it is. The other thing is as well, I just thought just highlight real quick before we go is that when you are doing the self-test, you need to be aware that you can't um, rely on prompting. So for example, if it says, are you late all the time or is your child late all the time? Okay, maybe they are on time, but what have you put in place to get them there on time? So if you have to remind them 50 times and then you've got to remind yourself 50 times, and everything's a mess and you're looking for shoes, but you do arrive on time, maybe look at that as prompting and scaffolding and anxiety and, and have a look at what that looks like first. I know I've used this example a couple of times, but you know, maybe there's a lot of episodes these days, so I don't know really anyone who's listened to all of them, but there is the example of um, two students. So for example, they arrive, there's a male and female. So let's say the boy and the girl are both given homework. And the homework is due on, you know, I'm just talking crap, like Friday. So it's due on Friday when they get to school. Both ADHD students, boy and girl, leave it till Thursday night, right? They then, the boy goes, remembers and goes, yeah, it's due. I don't want to tell mom. I don't want to get into trouble. I don't want to have to do it. I don't care. I'm not going to do it. And they arrive on Friday morning and they haven't done their homework. Red flag for teacher if that happens enough times conversations are going to be had because that was reminded and over and over and blah, 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 blah. Girl, girl gets to six o'clock, let's say Thursday night and goes, oh my God, I am now hit with anxiety because my procrastination has meant that I have not started yet. But my society's pressure to be a good girl and be perfectionist has meant that now I will disclose to my mother who probably is going to be angry with me. But my concern of the teacher being angry with me and doing the wrong thing and getting into trouble now overrides my mum's, the wrath of my mother. So they then disclose to their mother and let's say their mum goes, oh, 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 moan, moan, moan. But they actually do stay up and make sure that the daughter has it done. Daughter hands in homework to the teacher on time, no worries. And teacher goes, great, well done. Then that happens constantly throughout the year. And then the parent says at some point to the teacher, hey, I think my child might have ADHD or blah, blah, blah. This is what I'm seeing at home. Teacher goes, wow, I just don't see any of that at home. To me, that's masking and prompting. So have a look at it when you're doing the self-assessment test. Think about it quite deeply if you can. Like if you didn't actually scaffold and help your child so much, would that child have that homework done? That girl, no. If the mum didn't help, in my mind, no. They wouldn't be able to, to get it done. They'd be in the same boat as the boy. But you can see how one gets diagnosed and one doesn't. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. It's just kind of, yeah. Or you do it so far in advance knowing that you're bad with time. That's another thing. It's something that I do a lot. You do it so far in advance or you start it like the week before and do like and have anxiety every day doing little bits and slaving over it when it only would have taken like an hour but it ends up taking you six but you get it done but you 
think about it so much because you know you might leave it to the last minute if you don't think about it. There's like that's another kind of version of it. I'm always the person that over overdoes, over prepares all the time before I kind of get in. So that's another like little one that like is very highly masking that you don't see because you see the fabulous finished product, but you don't see all that extra stuff that happens at home. Yeah, there's a really great questionnaire, Jane. Yeah, that's right. There's a really great questionnaire. There's a really great questionnaire, um, Jane, specifically aimed for girls, specifically. It's from Kathleen. Her name's Nadu. She's an American psychologist who's come up with all of, it's like a screening test for just girls. And if you look up her name or link that into your podcast, that one's got those kind of small nuances that we're talking about here that don't always come out in like a generalized kind of one, those smaller kind of things that show that masking more because that's what it's hard to kind of get through with a normal questionnaire. So there's some really good ones because, yeah, that masking, that's kind of what I do all the time. I, I mask still now at work, even though I know I have ADHD and that I've told people I still do it because that pressure, like you said, that societal pressure to be good and be do do my job well, I just do so much extra stuff at home that no one else does just to kind of make it look great before I get in. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I think that's one of the problems, well, not problems, but it's a, it's definitely an element to it. So if I disclose to people that I have ADHD, which I do pretty regularly now, a lot of people will like really second guess me. They'll look at me twice. And one of the reasons is, is because you write the anxiety. So for example, like I will, if that, I mean, prep is the worst. It's so heavy on the parent for prep. And when you've like, I'm in my second run at prep, I'm done with it. By the time my third gets to prep, I'm like, honestly going to just tap out of life because I'm so sick of all the shit you've got to do. And I get it. I understand why. I don't mean to have a whinge, but like, it's just, it's just exhausting. Anyway, so, you know, you've got to make the cake for the cake store. You've got to do this for that. It's teacher's A day. Now everyone's got to bring in, but the timing's always very specific with prep. Like it's like on Thursday afternoon, we will be accepting cake donations on Wednesday afternoon you have to deliver the secret gift for the teacher's aid, but you cannot show the aid and it must be delivered here to this part, right? Every time I have it written down, I always do it 48 hours before because I can't stand the stress that I'm going to miss it, especially if I've gone and actually done something like this. I've written the card and then I'm thinking, oh, that's not my drop-off day. My husband's going to have to do that. I'm going to have to remind him 17 times. He's not going to know what to do. Then he's going to ring me. He's going to stress me out. I'm just going to do it. And so from the teacher's point of view, when I walked in there at the parent teacher, like completely disheveled, I don't know, I had talked on a podcast, one of the episodes, I was so disheveled. I didn't even know what, what classroom to go first or what time. Like I was, couldn't find the email of where it was confirmed. I was an absolute mess. And it was because I was interviewing, it might've even been you, Millie, someone that I was really enjoying. And I ran super late. Oh my God, that was you. I was so into it. And then I rushed and then like, and I literally didn't know what time I had to be there. It was a whole thing. I went in there and I flew into the prep classroom and I was like, and I was like, am I supposed to be here? What time am I here? And the woman, like the teacher was like, are you okay? Like, are you okay? Because she thought I, and I was like thinking like, this is just how I am, love, like I'm good. And then she's like, okay, cool. Come and take a seat. You know, you're not in here for five minutes, but come and take a breath. She's very nice. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. I don't even know where my kids are and I don't know where my husband is. And I'm like, like I have to go and I'm just going to be coming back. Anyway, get back and she's like telling me about how Gus can't retain any sight words and blah, blah, blah. 
anyway, I said to her, look, I have ADHD. I fully get this. He's probably just not interested. You know, we had a chat about it. I was very like candid and upfront, didn't understand any of the homework. It was a whole thing. And she said to me, oh, I would never have thought that because you always have all of the stuff ready in advance. And I said to her, but do you see how my timing's off? I never have it on the day. I've always before, like well before, like you tell me what day, I'm never on the day. And she's like, actually, when you point that out, I do have a little hole that I put stuff because you never have it the right day. And I'm like, that's because I have anxiety around it and of doing the wrong thing and not having it and my child then suffering. So I can't get the right day. And that's such a female presentation of it because a lot of people think I'm really efficient and I'm not. It's just anxiety-driven stress. Oh, people, yeah, people at work tell me that I'm organized. They think I'm one of the most organized people at work. And that is ridiculous. Like I laugh so hard when people say that I'm organized because I am not organized, but I am very good at making it look like I'm organized. So it looks like I've got everything organized. I've sent the email out five days before. I've got it all organized at work. But a lot of the time I do that for work. And then I come home and my my life at home is like, like shit. Everything just falls to shit when I get home. I can't remember appointments and get things on time. But at work, I put so much effort in to have that, just like yeah, the anxiety of looking like I'm not capable is so big for me. And I get so stressed about it that I overdo it, overprepare it. And it looks like I'm amazing all the time. And then I go home and I am like exhausted, wrecked, and can't give any energy to my family, tasks that are just mundane at home, just all of that stuff. Like, so yeah, that's a massive part of it for masking. That's why most people don't think that, yeah, when I say that I've got it, they go, they just, they can't quite see it initially. And they ask me, what are the things and I have to go through what we're just talking about now. It's like, well, you know how I come into planning on Tuesday with all this stuff? Well, I stayed up on Monday thinking about it before I got to the planning so that when we were in the planning, I didn't get sidetracked because that's what will happen if I don't do it beforehand. So people don't see that stuff. They don't see the behind the scenes part, I think, to a lot of people that mask. that Yeah, that's the whole masking thing, isn't it? Like I'm completely not showing everybody the stuff behind my mask. My mask is on and the perfectionist is out and I'm amazingly doing stuff, but underneath I'm drowning a lot of the time and that's that's the masking part of it and it's yeah it's very hard and it's so exhausting and yeah it's just it's a hard thing to do when you get yourself into that that routine of doing it from a child and wanting to please and be a good girl and do all the right things it's just yeah it's a really hard thing to break I'm trying to break it now and I, I, I can't at the moment I don't know how to stop it I know I need to for my own mental health but I don't know how to stop wanting and that anxiety to do everything really well for everyone else and look like I'm doing it really well. It's so hard. Oh, exactly. And if that psychologist hadn't have like stepped me through it and convinced me, like he literally had to convince me and I was denying it the whole way that I had it right. Because for me, it's normal. Like having anxiety and being an overachiever and stressing and worry, I thought that was actually normal. I have no memory of ever being any different. So I would look at my daughter and be like, she's an overachiever. She's successful. What's wrong with her? She's great. Until I started taking medication, even when I started this podcast, I'm going to be honest, I didn't think I had anxiety. I really didn't. But when I interviewed enough people that talked about their symptoms, I was like, wow, 
I think I am more severe than that person. And then I started taking the right medication and I was like, oh, I feel quite relaxed. And I didn't even know that that was a thing. So if you, as a parent, are looking at your child going, well, she's pretty normal. And I hate using the normal word, but that's just a normal kid. Yeah, it's normal for you. It's normal for you, but it's you don't know any better. It's all you know. That's, that's the whole thing about a lot of people. Yeah, it's a lot of people that are like neurodivergent being diagnosed now. It's like they don't notice it in their child because they probably are too because what you all do in your family and like your grandparents and like everyone does that. So it's like, well, that's what people do. But actually it's not what people do. People don't prepare things the week before. People don't like overdo stuff to like a perfectionist point. People don't talk about, you know, their special interest to length, you know, and like chew someone's ear off about it. People don't do that. Not typical people don't do that. <laughs> Neurodivergent people do that. And we all kind of flock together. It's like common for you to find, we all find each other and we all get along with each other because we are similar and we share that. That's why we kind of, yeah. So you hang around people that are neurodivergent. So you're like, oh, actually this person might be too. And that, like, I think a lot of my friends yeah, are quite neurodivergent also, but probably don't all realise that they they are. Like I can see things, but like, yeah, it's kind of like you hang around with those people, your family's like it, that's why you think it's normal. So it's very interesting and it's tricky though because if you think it's normal, how do you know what you're looking for? Oh, totally. And then I talked to someone recently and she's like, oh, everyone's neurodivergent now. Like it's just, she's like, oh, that's just a normal, everyone is, everybody I know is. And I said to her, I think everybody in your world is. I don't think the whole world is. I think you have created your own neurodivergent group of friends and family, and that's lovely for you. But I said, just be aware that when you go out in the community, because her kids weren't quite at school yet, it's like, just be aware that when you get to school, that's not actually going to be the case necessarily. Because she honestly thought that everybody, because everyone she knew was, and I was like, no, no, that's just your special place that you've made for yourself. She's she's gravitated to the people that resonate with her and that have probably similarities to her. It's so funny. Yeah, I think it's we all we, we kind of we kind of flock together a little bit. So sometimes, yeah, you've got to kind of look out and go, oh, actually, most people don't do that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and then every now and again it's a bit of a shock to the system when you hang out with people who are neurotypical and they don't have any idea about neurodivergence and they don't mean to say the wrong thing but inadvertently they accidentally put their foot in it and I kind of look at them now like a bit sympathy-wise, like they're just so sheltered, they just have no idea what they're saying, they don't mean to be offensive. But every now and again I see people like that and I'm like, oh, no, they still, they're still around. Mm. There's still there's still the neurotypicals out there. They're out there in the world somewhere, doing doing normal everyday boring things and not having overthinking minds. I can't even imagine what they would be like all the time. It'd be quite boring, I reckon. I know, and they always have like really simple problems. They always have like really simple problems, and I get a little envious if I'm honest because I look at them with their simple problems, and they're fairly straight straightforward kids, and I'm like. I don't think you know what it's like over here in neurodivergent land because you are oblivious because you don't have to know. You are living you are living a quiet, simple life and you have no idea of the chaos around you. And to be fair, why would they? If they're living over there in neurotypical world, they why would they? Because if I was neurotypical and had neurotypical kids, I wouldn't necessarily delve into this. This is a melting pot of like this is craziness over here. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree. It's just like, it's so funny that that's what their life is like. It's just, I look at it and go, wow, it'd be so different. But you know, I actually, I like some of the chaos sometimes too. And the most fun characters that I have at school and students that I have at school, they're neurodivergent. The ones that I love the most, they're just so funny. They're just funny, great, quirky, exciting, creative people. Like I love, I love, I guess I am neurodivergent. So that's why. I kind of stick to those people, but oh, me too. yeah, it's really fun and we stick together. Well, we are going to finish up, Millie. It has been an absolute pleasure. If anyone has any feedback about the episode, feel free to DM me. If you've loved the episode, a great favor to be would be to give a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. What it will do is it will raise up the profile of the podcast. So anyone in Australia types in ADHD, it will come up. I think it will help everybody. One of the reasons I started the podcast was because there was really no Australian podcast on ADHD. So that's the reason why it exists. And I felt like there was a lot of UK, US ones. You've got the accents and it's not really heavily relevant, a lot of the information. So I really want to get the Australian podcast out there. So thank you so much for your time, Millie. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jen. I really enjoyed talking to you about these things.